Welcome to the fifth episode of the 80s and 90s Cricket Show. I'm Gary Naylor. This week, we're looking at the early career of a bolshy schoolboy leg spinner who grew up to become an England number three and transformative captain. That's Nasser Hussein. And in our second innings, we'll focus on the summer of four captains, 1988. Just as Jim Laker always acknowledged the largely unseen work of Tony Locke at Old Trafford in 1956, we know that we can't do this without great support. The 80s and 90s Cricket Show is sponsored by Anderton Law, the firm that specialises in employment matters. So if you have any issues at work, do not hesitate to contact them at andertonlaw.co.uk. Our guests this week are Derek Pringle, former cricketer and freelance cricket writer. Hi, Derek. Hi, Gary. Mike Selby, former chief cricket correspondent of The Guardian. Hi, Mike. Hello, Gary. And Rob Smythe, freelance cricket writer. Hi, Rob. Hi, Gary. Don't forget that you can find us on the web at 80sand90scricket.co.uk. And it's been a pleasure to see so many listeners contacting us on Twitter at crickshow 80s 90s so, Derek, um, at the start of NASA's career, you were there. How would you describe the character of the teenage NASA Hussein? Well, he was a curious thing. I mean, you talk about him as a bolshy leg spinner. I, I don't recall ever seeing this part of him because I think he probably decided by the time he came to Essex that his leg spin wasn't up to much. He might have rolled his arm over in the nets a bit, but I just can't remember him focusing on that at all. Obviously, he liked to practice, very difficult to get him out of the nets. Sort of curious mix of, he was sort of slightly shy at the start, uh, but always pretty tenacious. Uh, and once he sort of felt he got his, 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 his you know, feet under the table, as it were, he became quite stroppy <laughs> and, and, and would stand out for himself. Um, I think in many ways, it was often mistaken as sort of selfishness. His, his tenacity, etc. I mean, he was very inwardly focused. There's no doubt about it. I think that was a product of growing up in the, in the family he did. His father wanted you know him to succeed and uh, did everything for him as a young man that he could do that. So, uh, but he was a bit scatterbrained. I mean, when I played with him in the uh, we went on tour to the to the Nehru Cup out in India in 1989, and uh, first time I think he'd got in an England England squad. Um, certainly senior squad and um, he proceeded to go around India because obviously you know he traveled quite a bit in, in those tournaments leaving some bit of equipment at every venue virtually I mean he left his gloves somewhere and, and we had to go back for them only to find a, an ox eating them <laughs> because that's how they used to cut the grass a lot of those, <laughs> those places in the middle of nowhere in India put the oxen on to have a little graze and they were, they were feasting on NASA's gloves and he even left his blazer in a hotel room somewhere I don't know how he did that because you're meant to be wearing that most of the time but he managed it so curious mixer uh, as I say a bit of shyness but uh, very determined and and, and, was sta- and and a fiery character once once he got a bit more confidence but anything other to do with caring for his cricket bat he was scatterbrained over Mike, when did you first come across Nasser Hussein? Nasser didn't really resonate with me as a as a young cricketer. I, I suppose you know there's a lot of young cricketers come in, aren't there? And uh, uh, except for the the game at uh, Taunton when he was playing for combined universities, and and they had a good run in the Benson Hedges Cup uh, to the knockout stages, and and he very very nearly got them over the line against Somerset. I think they lost by 
by three runs, but Nasser made 118 chasing the target. Uh, and I think that's really the first time that he came to, to prominence in the uh, uh, in the game. His debut probably passed pretty unnoticed against North Ants. He was only 19. He didn't make any runs. And... Uh, you know, it progressed from there, but I have to look at him through the eyes of statistics. We can say he didn't—he didn't really come across uh, my bowels. I must admit, as a as a as a writer, and um, but I notice uh, you know, Derek says that uh, he he didn't really seem a bolshy kid, but uh, I think his schoolmasters and his cricket masters seem to disagree with that, as they. Um, they rather said that he needs to learn to accept the umpire's decisions with some measure of equanimity, which is clearly <laughs> lacking in him at that particular <laughs> stage. And I don't think much changed thereafter on that one. Um, giving up the leg spin seemed to be a very wise thing. Um, from what I can gather, he was a little lad who bowled big moon balls. And uh, and as soon as he grew a bit more and his trajectory changed, he couldn't he couldn't bowl those anymore. And uh, uh, and he realised that batting was his forte. And uh, I don't think he hardly bowled, did he? After he was um, yeah, after he was in those junior sides. No, as I say, I don't I don't recall it. No, I mean I I first came across NASA when I. Uh, I bought a job lot of uh, back issues of the cricketer at some jumble sale in Wandsworth <laughs> or something, and I'm, I'm thumbing through them, and uh, there is a little kind of passport-sized photograph of uh, a very young-looking Nasser Hussein, who's described as the uh, leg spinner who recently won the Essex Schoolboy Cricketer of the Year under-13s level or something. So he was clearly being sort of uh, watched at a, a, a quite a young age, and we know the influence of his his father as a kind of personal coach, come uh, encourager, come tough love uh, dispenser to NASA. Um, but yeah, I think uh, the, the feeling was that the leg spin went with the growth spurt. He was a kind of reverse Stuart Broad in some ways that uh, putting on the inches meant that the bowling went and he concentrated on the on the batting. Um, a bit, of an ex- uh, bit of an excuse that, uh, Gary, isn't it? I mean, it could you know, be. An- Anil Cumbly was quite tall. <laughs> The mysteries of leg spin to those of us who can barely get the arm over remain. I think he he probably, probably realised that he wasn't very good actually. Yeah, exactly, know, exactly. He, I mean, you know. He's not. He's not daft. Yeah. So, um, Rob, let's let's fast forward the clock on, and um, he has a kind of strange stop-start opening to his England career where he's he's pitched in against the West Indians away in 1990 which seems cruel and unusual punishment within the bounds of the Geneva Convention if you ask me <coughs> and then he's out again and then he's back in 93 against the Australians um you know how would you describe Nasser's nascent England career well as you said stop start he um he didn't do a lot in the Caribbean but he actually played two of his three tests he played with a broken wrist the first one he knew he didn't know about he just thought it was a kind of routine wrist injury. The second one he did, made 35-34 when England were in Antigua. And actually, by playing on that cost him, because what nobody knew at that point, 1990 was an orgy of runs. But he was out for about two months, I think. So he lost his England place. Uh, it was the summer, you know, Gucci's 3-3-3 and Fairbrothers 3-6-6 in county cricket. And after that, he just drifted away. He went on A-tours most of the time, uh, but was sort of just kind of bubbling under, discussed but never picked Came back in 93 when England had their usual clear out. Again, did okay. Got runs on his first game back. Faded a bit towards the end of the series. And then went to the Caribbean, but didn't get in the team and was particularly annoyed that he didn't get in for the fifth test. 
they were bowled out for 46 and I think he sort of accepted the fourth test but then when Rampakash failed again he had a, one of his rare rows with Mike Atherton and said basically it's a joke um, and again for another two years I think 94 f- one of the winters he didn't even go on an A tour um, and he took himself to Australia to play club cricket which I think was really helpful kind of reinforced his love of the Australian culture you know make every innings count and basically there are no friends on the field and all that but it's the big turning point was when he came back in 96 so by then he's like 28 years old played seven tests uh and was, not only did he come back he was pitched in at number three which had been a problem position for ages when David Lloyd's first test as coach and he got a century in his first innings but it was if he'd been unlucky in 1990 with a wrist injury in the timing then it kind of reversed here because he gloved Srinath down the leg side on 14 I think Daryl Hare didn't give it went on to get a really important 100 in a low scoring game which was one of his specialities. And to be honest, I can't remember his place ever being in serious doubt after that. Maybe in 2000, when he was having, when he was captain and was couldn't buy a run, and there was sort of a discussion about. But certainly between '96 and getting a captaincy, he went almost instantly from um, peripheral figure to vice captain. Because by the end of '96 summer, he became vice captain for the winter tour. So it was a really, it was a delayed jump. But once he actually got in, it, he made progress really quickly. It's it's interesting though because I remember Alice, you know, in hindsight, obviously uh, now regrets not picking him in the side in that in that early tour to the West Indies when Mike first got the captaincy. Mm. Um, I think really in place of Maynard, I think he, yes. he felt that he should have played. Uh, he should have picked NASA instead of Matthew Maynard. Um, Rob, that hundred he got um, against India. I was just looking at some of the county scores in the build-up to that test series, and he only got three half centuries in about 13 or 14 innings. Yeah. So, he, you know, his form wasn't great. So suddenly, you know, why pick him then? I and do you know, they had the same thing in 97. He went into the Edgerton test in terrible form before his double 100 against Australia. I think he was picked as much as anything on the back of that A-tour as captain to Pakistan because he'd yeah. impressed everyone, both with his batting and his leadership. The kind of first time since, I think, under, certainly since age group level, that he'd led England and... um yeah, I think he impressed everyone. And I, I don't know, you get the impression in those days, he kind of, the decision would have been made, if not officially, but, you know, after the trip, and they kind of almost didn't care that he wasn't informed at the start of the season. But that changed his life, really, because it showed people that he could be more than just an insular uh, batsman. It's a bit of a subplot to that for West Indies tour, in, in point of fact, because, you know, this is where NASA first really impacted on me, actually. Um, and a warm-up match against the Leeward Islands in uh, in St Kitts. Uh, so the Leeward Islands are a good side, actually, and, and Richie Richardson was captain. And NASA played in that game. Um, it was a it, it, it wasn't it was an entertaining game. They had a band around the boundary, the, the brass band, and they struck up every time somebody hit a four or six. And poor old Keith Medlicott, the band was band was exhausted. <laughs> so it just kept disappearing. But but NASA NASA played in that game, and he kept. Getting not given out, but hanging around, hanging around, <laughs> hanging around. When he nicked one, he'd stay there. Nick one, he'd stay there. And and eventually he was LBW in the second innings of this match for not very many. Uh, and he stood there again. And Richie Rich went up to him and in the end said, Nash, you've had plenty of goes, mate. Just, just better go. <laughs> so, he, so he sloped off muttering to himself. And that and that's where actually, this is, as, a, as an aside, um, the, the correspondent for the Sun there, Ian Todd, who Derek and I know very well, and that's where he 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 invented a a new kind of journalistic 
way of doing quotes because, you know, he wasn't going to get quotes out of NASA then. So he invented the phrase, he walked off as if to say, (laughs) and made up this this raft of quotes about what he might have been saying. Anyway, subsequent to that, he was then seen walking around the boundary with Gucci, who's captain, getting the most almighty bollocking from, from Gucci. He then played in that first test, as you as you say, and then I'm pretty sure he broke his wrist playing tennis in the on yeah. the tennis court in Guyana during you know we didn't get a game on because of the weather, and I think that's where he when you say he broke it, I think he 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 cracked it. He didn't break it, he cracked it, but later on that impacted on him. It told you a little bit about him actually because towards the end of that tour, before the Antigua Test match, remember Gucci got injured, broke his um, he broke his finger, and there's that famous picture of Laurie Brown trying to reduce a dislocation when actually he got fractured. Yeah, it was too. And uh, anyway, so they they had the fourth test. Now, meanwhile, David Gower, who wasn't on the tour, was reporting the series for the Sunday Express. He was there as a Sunday Express cricket correspondent. And I'm pretty sure that Alan Lamb, who was the captain at that stage, took over from Gucci, tried to get NASA to say that he wasn't fit to play because of this wrist to get Gower to come out of the press box and play in the Antigua test match. And NASA put his foot down and said, well, I am fit. And, and of course, did play in that Antigua test match. So there was a bit going on behind the scenes there. I think I think it was at St. Kitts itself in, in, in the, on the Atherton, when Atherton was captain, they played, I think, there, didn't they, as well? They had a warm-up game there, and that's where some wag in the ground started shouting out to Angus Fraser, Fraser, you're a Volvo man. And Fraser kept looking at him, and every time he caught his eye, he said, easy to drive, easy to drive. <laughs> I just want to look at an aspect of of NASA's character that comes across in quite a few interviews. And I want to ask you, Derek, really, because the the kind of legend of the Essex dressing room, probably from the days of of Ray East, if not before, is that it's a very happy environment, a kind of freewheeling jokers and and very successful. And yet uh, NASA Hussein, who, who does say that the Essex dressing room shaped him, is constantly referring to his fear of failure. He seems to play the game in a kind of heightened sense of anxiety. And he twice mentions Kevin Peterson that he'd love to have played like KP with that kind of freedom in an interview he did with John Stern. So um, what role did that fear of failure play in in, in NASA's uh, cricketing life? I don't think that was transferred to him from the Essex dressing room particularly. I think that came from his family life. I mean, his He's mixed race, NASA. His mother's English-born. His father's born in India. And I think, like a lot of immigrant families, you know, they want to succeed. And I think, you know, NASA desperately wanted to succeed. I don't think he was had much pressure put on him by the Essex dressing room, where perhaps the, the, the anxiety was added to is that he, he did behave poorly on occasion in a, in a dressing room setting. Like, for instance, at the Oval once, uh, we you know, uh, in a knockout uh, one day trip, I think it was the Nat West, and uh, he got yorked by Tony Murphy, and he came off through his bat in his, in his coffin and started ranting and raving at why our bowlers couldn't bowl more Yorkers. You know, they practice their skills. He kept saying, "You know, look, he's practiced his skill. Why aren't you practicing your skills?" And of course, Gucci had already been out, <laughs> didn't take very kindly to this, and summoned him, and then proceeded to drop him for a, uh, for a game or two. I think beyond that, and also is that that incident in the dressing room when he 
had a row with the captain, Neil Foster, and then in, in frustration kicked a coffin, which then landed on Mark Eilott's foot. And then and they had a set to, and he was banned for a game for that. So, you know, he was, you know, in a way, I, I kind of admire the way he didn't back down, but sometimes his, his behavior wasn't great. But obviously, Essex, by that stage that he joined the dressing room, had been a successful side under Keith Fletcher. And of course, maybe, you know, we all felt that we wanted to continue that. And in some ways, we did. I don't know whether he got caught up in that and that made him more anxious, but uh, certainly I don't ever recall the dressing room putting pressure on him per se. He, no, um, no. He, I was going to say, he talks a lot in his book about, as as Derek said, it stems from his childhood, really. He was so desperate to impress his dad. This is when he's bowling leg spin. He said that basically his dad's moods would be so up and down. You know, if, if he, Nasser had taken a five or got runs, then uh, it was a nice takeaway and chocolate for everyone on the way home. If he'd failed, nothing. And not just Nasser would suffer, the whole family. And he became so desperate to impress him. He said, basically, that's where his fear of failure stems from. One thing I thought was interesting is that he said his bad wicket expertise was partly because he could play the ball late. But he said the main reason is because, basically, he didn't fear failing. You know, everyone else is failing, so it doesn't matter. I suspect he's doing himself down a little bit there, given how much he kind of relished a scrap and stuff. But I thought it was an interesting um, way of looking at it. Cue the Philip Larkin poem. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's a complete opposite. Yeah. I, d- I don't think that um, that Nasser's fear of failure was unique to him. I think a lot of cricketers, many cricketers, most cricketers perhaps have that element in them. And, and also the idea that back in the 80s and 90s or the, the 70s, the selection process was, uh, was was so random, it seemed, at times. You, you didn't get much of a chance, two, three games. If you didn't get any runs or you didn't get any wickets, you were out. Yeah, well, let's let's move on to towards the the end of this section because it's very much focused on on Nasser in his pre captaincy days. He he gets interviewed with the captaincy alongside Mark Ramprakash, um, and obviously Nasser gets the gig. Derek, what what did he have over Ramprakash in in that showdown? I think uh, he's always been able to speak very passionately off the cuff. And I think perhaps he impressed them at interview. I mean, seems to be where a lot of cricket jobs go. I know when Essex appointed Chris Silver, they said he was extremely interviewed, extremely well, better than the other candidates, and they gave him the job. And I think NASA would probably have done that. I think I think Ramps, although was very passionate, like NASA on the field, uh, was was seemed to be a, a sort of slightly calmer and shy bloke off it. Uh, although I, I was not obviously party to some of his tantrums in the uh, in the Middlesex dressing room, which you hear about, but uh, I don't know. I mean, it's yeah. difficult to say. I suppose Ramps Nasser had a university education, gone to Durham University. Ramps hadn't, uh, and they probably, you know, the hierarchy then probably still kind of viewed you know, a university man in, in charge of the England team as, as something preferable. It, it is interesting, isn't it? I've, I've thought much the same as Derek. You know, I, the answer, the initial answer to the question, the superficial answer is, I don't really know what Toronto <laughs> Ramps are. Two very similar characters in some ways. Well, we call them the tantrum intense. twins. The tantrum <laughs> twins. <laughs> is that right? I didn't know that. Well, there you go. Um, you know, they're both very, very intense, both terrific crowd. You know, Ramps, actually, in, in, in pure technical terms, was a superior player to uh, to NASA. So maybe, the, you know, the fact that Nasser actually had a better record at that stage to Ramps, um, that may have told. You know, we, we, if you hear Ramps talk now, you understand that he's an extremely intelligent fellow and, and talks very well about the game of cricket. So 
how he would have interviewed, I I don't know. Um, they're both mixed race, of course, which is another interesting thing. What I, what I do know is once they picked um, NASA's captain, that first game he had at uh, the Oval against New Zealand, which which they lost, and the second innings, Rams got a first baller, and, and then and then I don't think played for a while. So you know, it was it was an interesting enter Ramsey's um, immediate career, certainly. I think NASA had a slightly more credit in the bank as well he'd done the a tour really impressively been vice captain been in the team as a regular a couple of years longer i think a big part of his pitch was and this is something you spotted i think almost for anyone else Derek. but um a big part of his pitch to lord mccarr and david gravely was the whole idea that people behave differently when you give them responsibility and his fieriness could be channeled in the right way and didn't you recommend him to essex and were told sort of laughed out of the room I was, yeah. I mean, uh, when I retired, I said, you know, after after Gucci, you want to make this lad captain? And they said, you must be off the rocker. <laughs> no chance. What did you see, Derek, that, that led you to that? Uh... Well, I, I saw a very a very passionate guy. I mean, as I say, a lot of people mistook that for selfishness. And, and he, you know, he was fairly inward-looking at uh, NASA for a lot of the time. But I just felt that he was very passionate about him succeeding and the team succeeding and therefore if you gave him some responsibility you'd see it channeled in a different way rob what do you think led nasa to embrace duncan fletcher in this kind of brave new world that you know it's it's 1999 it's too easy to sort of say you know end of an era and everything else but it felt it unlike a lot of turning points that that look like turning points in the rearview mirror this actually felt like a turning point at the time, it felt like things wouldn't be the same again. And sure enough, they, they weren't. Obviously, central contracts, but there was a, a whole sort of different approach that came through. Why, why was it that, that NASA was the right man at the right time, along with Duncan Fletcher? To be honest, I think a lot of people would have been. I mean, Mike Atherton would have loved to have worked with Duncan Fletcher, had central contracts. But I think everything NASA had been through had built towards that. You know, he knew about the insecurity of three or four tests and then disappearing for three years. He loved the Australian culture. He tells a funny story about Alan Border Essex coming in, having played abysmally, and everyone said, bad luck. And he basically said, you fucking pommies are all the same. Bad luck. I batted like a busted ass, and all you can say is bad luck, and stormed out. And there's a young NASA thinking, that's fucking brilliant. I love that. Um, so I think it was all building. So there was a lot of serendipity as well. I mean, he didn't know Duncan Fletcher, and he said himself that had he worked with a different type of coach. I mean, for example, can you imagine Nasser and Ray Illingworth? I mean, it wouldn't have lasted five minutes. That's not to say one is right or one is wrong. They're just completely different characters and had completely different ways of doing things. So I don't think it was anything... I don't think it was a huge leap of faith for him to embrace all that. I think it's stuff that he always... And David Lloyd was kind of guiding England towards that as well. He tried to increase our team England ethos and... Um, and he wanted central contracts but didn't get them. So I think everything was kind of moving in that direction. It just um, it all came together at the right time with Duncan Fletcher. What was the, the media's view? Because, as you've already said, he wasn't the easiest to get a quote from, even though he was later to make a very successful career in the in the media. And the media at that time did, did help have some influence on the kind of decisions England made. I think we've probably thought it was a bit of a poison chalice. I think it was at that time, you know, the, the taking over. He was, I, I think one interesting thing is that he was he was 30 then, wasn't he? And 28, he'd had, uh, 28, was he? No, 20. um, oh, 28 when he came back. Yeah, 28 and 96. Right? Yeah, 31. Yeah. yeah, 31 then. So, you know, that, that's almost anathema now. You don't look at that. You want a young captain you can bring up. Others, of course, was only in his early 20s when he took over. So there was that element to it. And there was the element of the unknown that he was t- he was taking over after this incredibly chaotic 
sequence of, of, of years for, for England. And, you know, it's, it's one of those things that leads me to believe that NASA is, is actually almost the most important England captain of the um, uh, of this millennium. Um, I think it's remarkable because what he did was to take the England team that was right at the bottom. It was as low as it could, as it could go and drag them up by the bootstraps. And he didn't make them into into world beaters, what he did was to stop the rot. You know, together with Duncan and, and, uh, and Ian McLaurin, they, they stopped the rot and they started to build up from there. And everything that came after that, Michael Vaughan, Andrew Strauss, all those people who came after that, have, have NASA to thank for that. Goffey said that he he thought NASA was the best captain he, he, he ever played under. I think the key thing with NASA that you have to remember is that NASA never sought popularity. He sought respect. And, and you know, that that's a key thing because I've seen plenty of captains who wanted to be popular and didn't get respect. Um, and NASA didn't care who he upset in those terms. He just wanted them to respect him for what he did. He backed his players. Um, he was passionate about what he did. Um, sometimes he, he wore his heart on his sleeve a little bit too much, you know, I can remember an instance in, in Faisalabad, actually. He, he just got another duff decision, another LBW decision, and he came back to the Serena Hotel. I remember it vividly, and I saw him in, walking through the lobby at the Serena Hotel, and all he, all he could say was, I don't know why I play this game. I don't know why I bother. I don't know why I bother. And I dragged him into the manager's office there, and I told I'll tell you exactly, Nass, why you bother. It's so you can stand at Edge Baston with your bat up, having just nudged one down to third man to reach 200 against Australia. That's why you bother. <laughs> And I think he, and I think he, and I think he did take that on board. You know, but it's true, isn't it? You know, he, his heart on the sleeve, and he, and he cared. He cared deeply about his game. Cared deeply about England cricket. Uh, and you know, we've been the beneficiaries of that ever since. Well, Simon Barnes, on the back of NASA's uh, book, uh, he's got he's quoted, and he says, "NASA Hussein is the most significant cricketer to have played for England since the war, and perhaps the finest captain to have held the office." Well, he's up, he's up there. Trump that. <laughs> well, I, I think on that quote, we can uh, perhaps foreshadow uh, an episode where we'll look at NASA Hussein, the captain, in a future episode of the 80s and 90s cricket show. But we'll, we'll call a halt there on NASA, the player. So our series of the week is the West Indies tour to England in 1988. It was to turn out to be one of the most memorable, but perhaps not for the right reasons, summers in English cricket history. But it started out really rather well. Uh, England played the West Indies in a series of three ODI matches in May and uh, win all three of them quite comfortably to uh, close out the series 3-0. Derek, you were playing in those matches. Um, a mood of optimism amongst the uh, ranks? There was, there was, and 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 I, as you say, we won them quite comfortably. Um, Mike Gatting was captain, and I think in two of them, he he, he batted pretty well and uh, and played the, the main innings. Bizarrely, I, I won the man of, man of the match in the second one, and uh, I think Sel. I don't know if you remember, you wrote something, Sel. Did I? Uh, sadly, I don't, Derek. But <laughs> well, well, I was reminded of it by someone else. I didn't know you'd written it, and, and apparently, you wrote in the Guardian, "A dangerous thing is a Pringle." 
I'm sorry about that. Uh, I'll tell you what I do remember writing. <laughs> this is, uh, I, I was I was very disparaging back then, Dell, about all sorts of things and trying to find things. So when they selected that squad, the, the, there was some strange, you remember Monty played, Monty Lynch? Yeah, he got picked up, Monty. And, and uh, we were all slightly bemused by this selection. And, and uh, I remember writing, because when, when, you, when you type, um, if, if you look, the Y and the U are next to each other on the keyboard. And I kept typing Monty Lunch. Instead of Monty Lynch, I thought, oh, I know where I'll go with this one. It's Gat, isn't it? It's Gat sitting in the selection meeting. He said, should we have lunch? (laughs) And and somebody a bit harder here, he thought, let's select Monty. And this is and poor old Monty, who I know pretty well now. He's he's, he's, he's our head coach at London Schools Cricket, and uh, uh, and, and this carried this around with him to this day. Monty lunch. Anyway, that's the story behind that. Sorry, I digress. <laughs> well, we, we we win the the appetizer, and uh, one day internationals were pretty much treated as appetizers for the main course, which would be five tests in the in the summer, and. England go into the first test with Mike Gatting as, as captain, and um, they've obviously lost in 76. They've lost in 1980, albeit rather narrowly. They've lost heavily in 1984, and the West Indies are back again. And for three hours, things are going quite well. England progressed to 125 without loss. Uh, Gooch gets a, a very handy 50, but then the wheels start to come off. And um, they didn't stop coming off pretty much uh, throughout the rest of the summer. Mike, well, we, drew, was... we drew that first test, Gary. Yeah, yeah, you, you, you did. There was... After two black washes, that was quite an achievement. <laughs> there, were, there were two chances to to win. And you know, Mike, what was the, uh, the the media's reaction to this? Was this you know a sense of hope, a corner being turned? Well, I, my recollection of the West Indies in that series was that they weren't actually at their, at their best, really. They, they were a little bit betwixt and between, I think, especially with the bowlers. They've got some young bowlers who we now recognise to have been very, very good bowlers. And Malcolm was uh, was at the under end. And, and I think Malcolm um, almost held the bowling together, Derek, didn't he, there? He, he was outstanding in that series, this versatility that he showed. I don't, re- I don't remember this great sense of optimism, I have to say, especially, you know, because... Well, if you've been through the eighties and you'd seen what West Indies had done and and you'd seen how England had been, it was it'd be very hard to be optimistic. I must admit. One thing I want to say: West Indies had drawn their last four series. There were kind of mitigating circumstances for a lot of them. Two were against a brilliant Pakistan side. Once they were. Uh, done on a turner in India. But even Clive Lloyd in the Express now, whether he meant it, I don't know, said it was England's best chance in a long time. Not that that meant a lot after two five nils, but um, you're right. There was a sense of transition, even though now we know that transition was actually people like Ambrose and Walsh coming back. It, it, exactly that, wasn't it? Bishop, you no. know, the, 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 Pato. Pato, yeah, yeah. yeah. Marshall was astonishing. The first three tests, 26 at 8.65. And yeah. those were on slow, low pitches generally as well. Well, and they were they were actually utilising different skills too. Which yeah. We'll come on to that, I guess, in a minute. But uh, he was wonderful to watch that series, I have to say. The two points of the, the match in that first test, which you would say England were either ahead or level in as far as one can say that about a test match. The the point I've already mentioned, 125 without loss, uh, some of them collapsed to 245 all out. Um, but then England are still in the game with West Indies 309 for six. 
Uh, and then Marshall gets 72 and, and Kirtley swings the bat to get 43. And um, West Indies end up declaring on 448 for nine before England easily bat out the match, 146 from Gooch and, and 88 from Gower. Um, Derek, in the, in the dressing room, what was, was that seen as something of a success against the, the background or was it seen as an opportunity missed? Well, again, you're testing my memory out here. Um, um, the only thing I can remember clearly is that uh, Phil De Freitas dropped Ambrose off me before he'd got to five, I think. So, you know, that, that little wand he'd got when he got 40-odd and had a, had a partnership with Malcolm Marshall and, then, and got them up to a decent score, you know, could have been avoided perhaps. I think I think we were just – we'd never done that well against their bowling attacks um, and, and therefore I think we thought getting away with a draw was a good thing. And on the back of those one-day wins as well, you, you thought, well, maybe, you know, if we play really well, we, we might just have a chance of winning the odd test. And then we go into the second test, but the second test really starts sometime before. And, Mike, do you want to explain what happened? <laughs> well, you, we get the ins- you can get the inside track from Derek and you can get the, <laughs> the outside track from me, the Rothley well, romps. Well... well yeah. <laughs> As they became known. <laughs> well, after that, you see, after that test match, a load of us in our business, we thought we're going to jolly. So we went down to Swansea to watch Benson Edges the following day after the test match to watch the Benson Edges quarterfinal down there. Glamorgan and Derby at Swansea. And, and say, oh, just a gang. Derek knows who, we, who the usual suspects would be. We were down there and it was, uh, it was going to be fun on the mumbles there and the rest of it. But the game was washed out and they had spare days for those matches then, especially a knockout game, felt like three days for it. So the first day was was curtailed. Now, Mickey Stewart, who was the, the team manager then, had gone down there himself on a bit of a, a, a jolly as a man of the match adjudicator for this game. So he'd gone straight from the test match down to down to Swansea for this game. So he's had to stay over, and we were staying in the same hotel. So the next morning, which was the, the 9th of June, I remember the date, um, we came down to breakfast, and Mickey was in breakfast too. He came into breakfast when we were there, and we said, "Mickey, have you, have you seen the have you seen the paper? Have you seen the sun this morning?" And he said, "Why?" We said, "I think you ought to have a look at it, Mickey." <laughs> and uh, so, he, so he got the paper and he looked on the back and he said, "Why? What's there?" No, Mickey, have a look. Have a look at the front. <laughs> anyway, so he had a look at the front, and that said that we couldn't see him for dust. We never saw him again. <laughs> So that was Mickey's introduction to the Roughly Romps, which, as you as you know, was involved um, the, the, the salacious uh, stuff about about uh, sex romps at the Roughly Court Hotel, <laughs> involving involving Gat print as a principal. Derek probably knows who these suspects were. I don't know this, but Gat was implicated in this as having entertained a lady, a barmaid, he said. This is very disparaging in his room on his birthday, as it turned out. And the lady in question was, I remember her name too, Louise Shipman. She was the daughter of the Leicester City football chairman, (laughs) as it it happened. And... uh, Anyway, whether or not, whatever Gat did or what, it was a bit of an irrelevant. It was all very prissy those days. And, uh, but, of course, on the back of that, he, he, was, um, he was fired from the job. Now, there was an imperative for the TCCB at that stage to rectify bad and inappropriate behaviour because, they, uh, if you remember, they'd gone through uh, Faisalabad in, in, in Pakistan with Gat and, and Shakarana. 
they'd gone through a, a pretty fractious, not fractious, but a, a, a lot of ill, Ill discipline on um, uh, on the previous tour to to New Zealand and, uh, and Australia, where Chris Broad smashed his stumps down, having got a hundred, and and Graham Dilly was fined a considerable amount of money for swearing on the field in Christchurch. So we'd had all that, and so this was a you know this was the final story as far as they were concerned. They didn't like it. Actually, what they did, they had Gatting hauled him over and said and said what happened. Gat told them they perfectly accepted Gat's version of events and fired him. <laughs> so it was, you know, it, it was, and I, and I and I do believe that it was that that was the the collateral from what happened in Faisalabad. I think it was an expedient for them. Well, well, AC Smith was quoted at the start of that season saying that uh, behaviour as much as performance will will get you in the side. Well, yes, it's, it's unusual to get a quote out of AC. AC famously <laughs> once was uh, once. Can we have a comment? He said, "I have no comment, but don't quote me." <laughs> <laughs> So, yeah. so Derek, what was it? What was it like as a as one of the the team here with Gatting as your captain and these allegations? Are, I love this word that I've seen crop up a few times. The word allegations of shenanigans in the room. What was it like as a player while all this is going on? <laughs> well, um, I wasn't aware aware of all these things until, like so, they broke they broke in the press. Uh, when we were playing the other one of the quarterfinals at Chelsea, and our game also got kind of rained over into a, a following day. I mean, in those days, Sundays um, were rest days, and because we were staying in Rothley Court, which is just north of Leicester, to play a chess match at Trent Bridge, which is a journey of about 25, 26 miles up the whatever, A, a whatever it is, 46 or something. Because uh, Gucci, myself, John Embry were quite interested in proper beer. We were always stopping off at a pub on the way back called the Crown at Old Dolby, and that's that's where we had our you know took our ale. Meanwhile, the rest of the gang apparently going to this place in, in the town where Rothley Court was, or the village where Rothley Court was. Um, pub's name escapes me now, but uh, they've been going there anyway. On the Sunday, Brian Hardy, who joined uh, the England squad because they felt the pitch might turn, and Essex didn't have a game, so they wanted a specialist um, short leg. If if you know they were to be needed, he said, "We're not going to go to that horrible beer pub, are we? Out of town. Let's just go to the one in the village." So we said, "I said, fine, let's go there." Gat was already there, having dinner with the selectors. Funnily enough, I don't know what happened, who who said what to who, but all I know is that we all ended up back at Rothley, the team and everyone, and and a couple of girls from the pub had come along, one of whom was obviously Louis Shipman. Now I don't know. I mean, Gat was has denied anything happened and, and I tend to believe him because in the dressing room the next day you know if you're gonna you know you're probably gonna brag about it a little bit and he, he said nothing so I, I tend to believe his version Selv uh, you're not strictly accurate when you say he was sacked apparently he was only appointed for the first two tests and he was obviously left out of the second test so he couldn't captain um, well, well, yeah, and well, therefore his, ten, his tenure had really <laughs> run out <laughs> well, that's, that's, kind of, that's kind of semantics isn't it he, he well, no, really no. Apparently, when he came back yeah but apparently he was he was he was due to be yeah. thinking about reinstating him for the third test and Aussie Wheatley vetoed it yeah I, I, I don't want to leave the the getting uh, story just yet though because was there a sense of kind of a, a breach of trust or something you know because what goes on tour stays on tour but obviously this is in the UK rather than overseas but the press must have heard of plenty of of shenanigans for want of a better word for years and years amongst England players why did they sort of splash it on the front page of the sun 
for that man at that time? Was well, it, probably was it because just the, the way it was? or Well, because of the bad behaviour, I think, leading up to it. I mean, I think people had been gunning for Gat ever since Faisalabad a little bit. There was a bit of that. I think I think you're right. There, there were sh- shenanigans going on most of the time, and on tour the press did turn a blind eye most of the time. But um, I think uh, it, it um, mobilised a lot of hard news reporters and they weren't taking any prisoners. Yeah, I mean, there have been things before. You know, there was the Sex and Drugs and Rock and Roll tour in New Zealand, wasn't there, the famous tour? So, you know, things had happened in the past. There was a time back where exactly, you know, what what happened, we're not interested in, in what you do, we're interested in the cricket. That that was certainly through my time. But it's, uh, as Derek says, there was there was an imperative at the Teston County Cricket Board then to clean up the game if you want you know the the way that uh, the game was played the way the England team was being viewed you know that that was a gap was collateral for that yes so uh, Rob um, England go to Lords for the second test John Embury is captain what happened next as uh, used to be said on a quiz show well it all started really well um, Graham Dilly bowled a Incredible spell before lunch, straight through. I think it was four for 35, 13 overs. Uh, West Indies were 54 for five. Then Logie edged Dilly between, I think it was between Derek and Graham Gooch in the slips for four. Yep. Um, well, well, you're being kind, Rob. Did you, did you get a hand it, on it? I, I watched I put it. Him, I, oh, I, put him, I put him down. I put him down. It was, it was quite a tough low chance, to be fair. Um, it wasn't straightforward. Anyway, Logie and Dujon, Logie in particular, was a brilliant counter-attacker. Dujon was obviously very elegant and calm and... They put on 130-odd, but they, they actually were the two of the batsmen in the series, along with Graham Gooch, had the highest averages, two century partnerships at Lords, which were absolutely crucial, particularly the first one. And it kind of got... But even then, it, so West Indies still bowled out for 209, which is fine, you know. But the problem is it was quite... It had swung quite a lot. And of course, if um, Graham Dilly and everyone else are going to swing it, and so is Malcolm Marshall. England got to 1-1-2 for two, which is a solid position. Then Marshall just ran through them. He would started to perfect the in-swinger around this time. I mean, uh, Trent Bridgie bought some extraordinary in-swingers, absolutely hooping. Same at Lords, and England were basically lost their last eight wickets for not much, 50-odd. And after that, West Indies were kind of in control of the game. Greenwich got a century, the only century of the series, actually, for the West Indies. And England were left chasing far too many, 500, I think. Um, did OK, Alan Lamb got a really good 100, uh, but they lost by... Actually, it wasn't 500, it was about 440. They lost by a decent margin anyway. So it was kind of it was in the end it was a comfortable victory, but actually, as in most games in this series, probably third test the only exception. England were in good positions at times in the first innings, and then West Indies eventually just pulled away from them. What's interesting uh, is that John Embry was captain that game, and and he blames himself a little bit as well. I mean, you know, I I, I certainly <laughs> culpable in the fact that I dropped dropped Logie, although as, as Rob's pointed kindly pointed out, uh, it wasn't a straightforward chance, but still should have probably snaffled it. But uh, Embers apparently blamed himself when he had a chat with a with a with a, uh, another journalist because um, he, he said that. Because Dilly was bowling really well and, and swinging it so much, Dill kept wanting to put you know one more over on the offside and have another slip or whatever. And in the end, it made him bowl a bit more of a negative line. So after that initial burst, you know where he got the wickets at lunchtime. After lunch, it was just a bit too wide of off stump. It's a, a bit negative, and when it should have been perhaps a bit more attacking, we could have maybe rolled him for 160. Which is very very generous of Embers to sort of you know, acknowledge that. Derek certainly in a Trent Bridge test. Marshall was swinging an old ball. And when you look at it now, it, it looks like reverse swing, um, certainly to those of us sitting 100 yards or so away. Was there any kind of suggestion that, that he was reversing it? Or, or, or what made him so magical 
certainly in the early part of the series. I don't, I don't think it was reverse swing because he, he got me out with an in-swinger at Trent Bridge. I mean, I got to 39, I think, or certainly 30-odd. Uh, and, and and felt pretty good, and then came back the next day, and I think he got me out of the first over. But it, it was a big inner, but it was it was probably going down because it just skimmed the pad and went onto the stumps off the pad, so it would, it would have missed leg stump. Certainly, I just think no, he he it was the great of pl- um, playing in, in county cricket. He he perfected this in, the ability to swing it with his wrist. He had a very upright wrist and a very stiff wrist that he just cut his pace a touch, not too much, and just concentrated on swinging the old ball, new ball flat out, old ball, get the wrist up, cock it, keep it stiff. If you uh, ever see um, sort of pictures of him uh, as the arms cock back, you can see that he's got the thumb under the ball. And if you do that, you hold a ball with the two fingers splitting the, either side of the seam and then put your thumb across and underneath the, the, the bottom of the seam, you can't help but stiffen your whole hand. You feel it all goes stiff. And therefore, that's why he was... So brilliant. He was, he was a man who worked very hard at becoming a great bowler and, uh, you know, he succeeded. It wasn't a summer for reverse either. It was a damn old summer. Lush, uh, yeah. Pitches, the outfields weren't, weren't suitable for that. There was some talk, Mike, that the West Indies were not really playing cricket, so to speak. They weren't really being straight here in the sense of playing four fast bowlers where you see off Patterson and Marshall and you've got Kirtley and Courtney coming at you. And... To some extent, I can understand because over rates were were very, very slow. And even though they did have the likes of Hooper in the side to bowl spin, there was a reluctance to, to do so. Viv could bowl a bit of slow stuff as well. Was there a kind of grumbling in the, the press boxes? We certainly felt it as fans that there was a kind of resentment that it wasn't quite the right thing to do to keep coming with four paces, bowling 12 overs an hour. Well, they've been doing it for a decade or more. I'm not quite sure why that would have surprised people. They've been doing that and winning games for. I never, I never had a problem with it. To be honest with you, I mean, it was just the way that they played, and we'd have done the same. You imagine back in the fifties if we'd have played Truman, Statham, Tyson, Loader all together, <laughs> you know. But they wouldn't because it was not done. So you played two plus a medium Trevor Bailey on a bit of medium pace and two spinners because that was the done thing. And and they they broke the mould, didn't they? The Windies they had this incredible resource that they had through the 70s and the 80s and, and into the 90s of, of fast bowling stock and uh, and they made the most of it. Um, I, I don't remember resentment. It might, might, you know, people might have been, um, if you were playing against it, a little bit, you know, here we go again type thing. Yeah. But, I, you know, you can't, you can't criticise them. They, they, well, they won. They kept winning. I was I was invited to a spectator lunch in that era. It possibly was in 1988, uh, actually. Um, but certainly the West Indies were still, you know, the team they were and, and playing the four fast bowlers. And, and uh, E.W. Swanton was there. And, of course, he started arguing, saying, you know, as Gary has suggested, this this is just not the right way to play the game, et cetera, et cetera. And I obviously at the lunch, so I said to him, you know, the players don't really mind at all, you know. And they don't really care about limitations on bouncers, uh, Mr. Swanton. And he said, looked at me, and he went, oh, balls, man. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, they were talking about putting a white line across the middle yeah. of the pitch and all sorts of stuff, weren't they? You know, we've got to pitch it beyond yeah. that otherwise. But, you know, you talk to Mikey Holding uh, about them, and he said, we, we didn't used to bowl a lot of bouncers. We used to bowl it around, you know, ribs, rib height. Used to come through their bouncers, so go over your head, don't they? You know, a lot of people, myself included, had rubbish bouncers. You know, got no idea where how to control a bouncer. They were brilliant at it. The other thing worth mentioning is that 84 and 85, 86 
looked extremely scary, certainly to a, a kid watching. But 88 was a lot more, you know, the pitch got slower and lower. It, most of it was skill, not just Malcolm Marshall, even Curtly Ambrose at that stage pitched up a lot more. I, th- I don't think anyone retired hurt in the series apart from Alan Lamb, and that's because he pulled a muscle, a calf muscle. It, it was a very different type of victory. I, I wouldn't bracket it, certainly not with 85-86, which was just scary on those really hard, fast pitches. And pa- even Patrick Patterson, who kind of symbolised that, he was out of the team after two tests, and they brought in Winston Benjamin, who was slightly different. So, I, I mean, I, I grew up reading those scare stories, you know, this isn't cricket and stuff. I, I didn't really understand it at that stage, and I, I don't now. And certainly not in 88, I don't think it's a fair criticism at all. No, I, th- I think you get an idea of the of the the bowling skill when you come to the next test match, so the old Trafford test match, which was, really was where you saw Malcolm at his absolute best, uh, and that was remarkable. Good segue. <laughs> Don't come to me on that one. I was dropped for that. <laughs> <laughs> so, so Rob, do you want to do you want to pick it up again? Embury's second test as captain. Things are soon about to change. So and Mike, final Mike, test. Mike Gatton was back, but only uh, in the ranks. Originally, I think certainly Mickey Stewart was keen to have him back as captain, but as you say, Ozzy Wheatley uh, vetoed it. And it was a kind of rain-affected route, really. England's were bowled out for 135 and then 93, I think. The last day, so they almost had a chance of a draw because it rained so much. Started the last day, this is in Manchester, started the last day three down, were bowled out, I think, inside an hour, certainly before lunch, and then it pissed down for the rest of the day, almost immediately. Um, but Malcolm Marsh was incredible. He took seven for 22 in the second innings and just far too good. But it doesn't look good when you bowl out for one, three, five, and ninety-three. And obviously, by this stage, England were also making multiple changes. So David Cable have replaced Derek. The Freitas was back. John Charles came in. They picked two spinners, which kind of ultimately cost John Embury because then he lost his place both as captain and player for Headingley. And then when they did pick a spinner at the Oval, it was John Charles rather than Embury. So by now, they kind of mess with him. Full Chris Broad had been dropped ostensibly because he couldn't get a run at home, or not that many runs at home, but also partly because of discipline. And Old Trafford's where it really started to unravel, I think. Well, it's it's an example of something that doesn't often get talked about, but which still plays a part in how I see a cricket eleven. In that you think of the West Indies and you, you think of the four fast bowlers, you think of Greenwich and Haynes up top and then Viv Richards, Clive Lloyd, the kind of, of batting there. But there was this capacity to to dig themselves out of holes with kind of lower middle order and, and late order runs. And in some ways, this is an exact example of it, looking at the scorecard, because, you know, Viv's out for 47 and uh, the 175 for four. And then Gus Logie makes 39, Geoffrey Dujon uh, 67. Roger Harper, 74, Malcolm Marshall, 43, and they're declaring. It must have been kind of relentless to, to play against this, Derek, albeit that you, you missed this match. I mean, how, how did you kind of find a chink in the armour of West Indies, either with bat in hand or ball? Well, I, I think actually in some ways that that team was a bit different from your uh, usual West Indies team because they were normally very aggressive. The whole batting ought to be very aggressive and just go for it and, and really try and rebuild if there was too much problem because they knew that they had the bowlers probably to whatever they got, you know, they'd get you for less. But um, I think in, in Logie was, was, was the key here. And, and I think Dujon was, as you say, was a very silky kind of considered player. Uh, that, that, that it was a little bit different. But I guess the problem was, you know, as you, as you pointed out, that they'd get lower order runs to get them out of a hole occasionally. When you've got a four-man bowling attack like they had, 
the opposition's lower order aren't going to get many. <laughs> it's just a fact of just a fact of life. You need you need to go back before the match itself to to understand what happened in that game because England had tried what you might call normal cricket to do, and they decided for the third test match. Mickey Stewart decided that they would try and play them on a turning pitch, and so they picked um, Embers obviously as captain, and they and they picked Nick Cook who got injured, and they called up Charlie Charles, John Charles from Essex to make a second spinner. They played two spinners. I think the two spinners got one wicket between them in the game for in sixty odd overs. Uh, Malcolm slowed it down, in swing, out swing, medium pace, fast medium, cutters the lot, took seven for 22, his best figures, England all out for 93, and that backfired. Viv Viv pretty much said, you know, you can try all you like, you can play what sort of pitches, we don't mind what you, we, we play and we still beat you. And Peter Marin, the groundsman who'd been instructed to prepare this pitch by Mickey and by the TCCB, went off muttering, that's the last time they fucking tell me what to do. <laughs> and uh, and, it, and it was, he was, he was angry. As, as anything, Peter Marin, because it made him look like he prepared a duff pitch and he, did, he just prepared one to order. So that backfired. So now they've lost another game. Yeah, Marshall, we, we often use the expression had the ball on the end of a piece of string for a spinner, but he was bowling at up to 90 miles an hour, but he certainly had it on the end of a piece of string, as you say. It was, uh, I remember watching that and every ball seemed to be different, but it always was exactly where he wanted it to go. It really was uh, quite something. Um, So, Derek, you're back for the fourth test, but that news was rather subsumed within the extraordinary developments with the captaincy. Yes, uh, I was back for Headingley, and and they announced Chris Cowdery as as the new captain. Um, uh, You know, nudge, nudge, wink, wink. Apparently he was, um, well, he is uh, Peter May's godson. But when I spoke to Chris uh, when I was doing my book um, about that episode, he said that he'd been kind of in, in the aftermath of Old Trafford, he'd been kind of promised that he would take the team to India that winter. And th- and they felt that, you know, keep him out of that. And then they decided, no, 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 let's get him in there. But he, he was saying that he'd, he'd, he was out of form with the bat, although Kent were doing well in the county championship, he'd been out of form with the bat. And he'd, he'd, he'd never played a test match in England and and he hadn't faced any of the bowlers apart from Malcolm Marshall, you know, the previous season. So, you know, he, he thought it was rather a strange thing to suddenly make him toss him in as captain. Yeah, there, there was quite a bit made, wasn't there, of the fact that he was Peter May's godson. And I I, I don't necessarily buy that. I, he was he was captain of Kent. Kent were doing really really well. They were looking for another captain. Just think of what the opposite might have been. You know, do you not select him because he's Peter May's godson, even though he might be the best qualified person to do that? I don't well, well, he clearly wasn't um, Cow as, as, a, as a player. You know, we, we, we know that, and he'd be the first to admit that. But to say that he, he was captain only because he was Peter May's godson, which is what a lot of people were trying to say, I think was just palpably wrong, or at least unfair. Yeah, and it, it felt at the time a little bit sort of easy, a little bit glib, and, and looking back on it, it certainly does as well. But it does lead to the question, but perhaps you've already alluded to it with Kent's season, of all the... Vast numbers were always told to so many county cricketers. Why was this county cricketer the one chosen at that point to, to lead England? It, it seems... Well, well everybody else had had a crack, hadn't they? So <laughs> it seemed like it. Well, it clearly had nothing to do with form because I think um, one of the many captains that summer, I think it might have been Embers, said that when he went into a selection meeting, Peter May was looking through the batting and bowling averages in the Daily Telegraph and sort of sussing out who they might pick next. <laughs> But as as I think Chris told me, he he'd not been playing that well up to you know at the point when he was picked to then be the next captain. 
You see, they, I, I couldn't remember who the selectors were. That's some part from Peter May, and I, I managed to find out there was Fred Titmuss. There only no. They, as far as I can see, the selectors were Peter May, Philip Sharp, and AC. And AC was it seemed a very strange one because he's a TCTB CEO. Mickey had an input, um, Philip Sharp and, and Peter May. We used to call Peter May the Shake, by the way. Can you remember, remember a character called Shake Yamani back in the day? Well, Peter oh, May heck. used to stand there when he talked to you and he got his coins in his pocket and he used to jingle them, so we called him Shake Yamani, you see. <laughs> and he became the Shake. And we just, every time he spoke, we just used to laugh at him because he'd go, chink, 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 while he was talking. Um, but, it was, it's, it, you know, it doesn't seem like a, a selection panel that's completely in touch with what's going on around the... Around the uh, the traps, is it? Well, they managed to come up with 23 county cricketers uh, who all played for England in that in that summer. Uh, so they, they knew some names, but some of them feel, as young people say these days, somewhat random. Rob, how did we end up with 23 players playing for England in one summer? I get the impression, I mean, it, eight it was the first summer I properly followed cricket. I have no idea where I came back from all, but I get the impression it was just kind of the logical conclusion of a Peter May's time in charge. I was reading something that Selv wrote, actually, when he eventually quit, saying that there was no kind of direction or identity. Even even if you get people who disagree with, there's often a clear plan. You know, Ray Edingworth had certain principles. You know, ideally he wanted five bowlers. He liked experience, particularly with batsmen and spinners. But with Peter May, it just seemed scattered. On one-minute county form, you know, Robin Smith was picked for this game mainly by virtue of a cameo in the BNH Cup final, uh, sometimes experience, sometimes a one-day form. Uh, and it just feels like the logical conclusion of that. And the fact, obviously, Blind Paddock was setting in because they'd been rolled for nothing at Old Trafford. So I think for this game, they made they had a 13-man, originally a 13-man squad at Old Trafford and only four survived for Headingley. Gooch, Gow, Lamb and Dilly. And even Gow was almost dropped. So it was just Blind Panic. It's, it was sort of an irony at play as well because uh, when when Peter May became chairman of selectors, I think in 1981, he picked Keith Fletcher as the England captain, and uh, um, I think uh, Fletcher was 38 at the time. And I think Selv, uh, I'm right in saying that CMJ asked him a question. He said, "Is this a long-term appointment?" And Peter May looked at CMJ and said, "Yes." He said, "There's no point <laughs> in chopping and changing." <laughs> <laughs> Roll on a few years and uh, it was all changed. But the thing that we sort of found a little bit laughable in, in the end, or getting towards the end, was that before each test, you still have the pre-test dinner on the Wednesday <laughs> night with you know lashings of booze and what have you. Peter May would get up every time and he'd say the same thing. You're the best players in England. We think you're the best men for the job. <laughs> <laughs> and, and in the end, no one believed that. <laughs> Because as you say, it'd be all changed by the time the next test came round. So speaking of the next test coming round, the series has gone. England go to the Oval, and it's all change again. Gooch is captain this time, uh, but the result uh, remains the same. Derek, what was the what was the feeling going in? Did you feel like condemned men on the way to the gallows at, uh, in South London, or? I think we were we were a pretty sort of you know um, I don't know racked force by then. Um, um, yeah, I, I, I think there was a little bit of that, and certainly 
a bit of gallows humor as well. Gal was dropped. Wasn't wasn't Gooch yes. the only surviving batsman who's played the entire can I, series? Can I, yeah. can I read you? Can I read you from Wisdom? Because this is the only way I could get my head around what was happening. It's like a failure <laughs> fast. This is it. You know, they did in, in one door and out the other. This is what Wisdom says of it in the days leading up to the match. Were a test of fortitude for the beleaguered England selectors. They'd chosen a side containing two uncapped players in Barnett and Maynard, although the latter was intended as cover for Lamb, who was still struggling for fitness after his injury at Headingley. Athy and Gow were omitted, small and capable were recalled, but no sooner had the team been announced than Dilly withdrew with a stress problem in the right knee. His place was taken by Defratus, who'd recently been the subject of disciplinary measures by his county. Next, Cowdery, the captain, and Barnett withdrew, suffering respectively from a foot and hand injury. Finally, on the eve of the match, Lamb was admitted defeat after a perfunctory fitness test. Bailey, the tall Northamptonshire batsman, was drafted in to make his test debut alongside Maynard. Can you skate through that again, please? <laughs> I mean, numbers in that game, in that game, numbers two to five had two caps between them. And, and they left out David Gower. Yeah, I mean, you can sort of sympathise a little bit from from you know, that 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 that, that uh, list of injuries that, that came in there. But I mean, it's it's it is just farcical to look back on that now, isn't it? But we did have an outside chance of perhaps winning that test match. Yeah, it took well, first innings leads. Yeah, I mean, so to continue with the the farce as metaphor, the doors were opening and closing, and England did eventually have their pants pulled down, but not immediately because, uh, yeah, a first innings lead. Indeed, and 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 a pitch that normally the over at that time of year starts to the surface dusts up a little bit. Um, which which helps the seamers as much as it does the spinners, and uh, I, I just feel that John Charles it was only a second test. He, he got a bit tense because obviously our best chance of winning was to for him to get a fifer, a fourfer, or a fifer because it was just gripping a little bit. But uh, I think he tensed up a little bit, and uh, and it didn't happen. And Carl Hooper didn't get many, but he he played one shot. I, I can remember it to this day. John Charles, you know, I was, I'd taken over the captaincy because Gucci had split his finger, dropped a catch, I think a tough catch in the slips and with the new ball and the seam was sharp and it had split, split his finger and he needed stitches. And um, John Charles decided he wanted to try and bowl into the rough for a bit and uh, Hooper, normally people kick it away, but not Hooper. I mean, he just sort of glided down and got inside it somehow. I don't know how he did that and eased it over long off for six. And at that point, everyone's heart just sunk them. Like, no, we got no chance. Yeah. <laughs> England ended up uh, setting a target at 225, which I'm sure somebody was thumbing through the record books and claiming it would be the fourth highest run chase in history. And these stats that, that come up that are never really worth very much. But uh, the West Indies got over the line, 226 for two, twin 77s from Greenwich and Haynes. Often in the the end of a series in a in a dressing room, you see both sets of players mixing, sort of you know socks rolled down, sharing a beer or something. But uh, Derek, I have the idea that that you guys are probably introducing yourselves to each other because you didn't know who you were. But what what was it like? Did you just think, thank God that's over, or were people busily sort of learning lessons or congratulating the West Indians? What was it like at the end of a, I th- I a think summer we, like no other? We certainly felt, a series like no other. Well, I think we all felt it was a major triumph, Gary, because we only <laughs> lost 4-0 rather than 5. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> Um, I can't. I can't really remember the emotions, to be honest. Um, you know, we were we were pretty used to getting zipped by the West Indies, so 
it didn't feel hugely different. I mean, there, there was that chaotic element to it that, you know, all those captains, et cetera, and, and the team chopping and changing all the time. But again, as, as Mike's pointed out a bit earlier, you know, you didn't get much of a chance to prove yourself in those days. You had to, you had to hit the ground running. And, and if you hadn't got much behind you after three tests, you were on your way. And in that series, obviously one test was about all <laughs> you got to, to, to make an impact. So no, um, anyway, that, that, that sort of culture of having a drink with the opposition didn't really happen then in dressing rooms the the game used to have a sponsor called Cornhill and they'd have a a, a marquee somewhere or, or, a, or a room and that and that's where you'd go and have a drink with with them and, and that's where you chat with the likes of Malcolm Marshall you know I used to have always good to chat to and uh, you know a little bit of mickey taking going on but uh, not much on our part obviously when you've been beaten 4-0 you keep your mouth shut just going back to to Chris Cowdery actually Chris Cowdery's appointment came immediately after Gat had again got into trouble with the, the TCCB because he published his book called Leading from the Front and it had a chapter in that about Faisalabad and about that tour uh, and that Fizz- apparently Fizzlebad. was Faisalabad, yeah, against his um, uh, the terms of his contract. Uh, and so he was he was disciplined and fined a lot of money, £5,000 or something for, for that. Gat didn't withdraw the the chapter, and instead he got his ghost um, to write the chapter in the uh, in the third person, uh, and still re- still published the book with with that chapter in it. Um, and as a result of that, he was saved. He was fined five thousand pounds. He then withdrew from Test cricket. Said, "I'm not. I'm not going to play on these terms." And and of course, the collateral from that we then subsequently saw with the with the Rebel tour to to South Africa because that was almost Gat's participation in that anyway was predicated on his disaffection with the Test and County Cricket Board as a result of the way he felt he'd been treated that summer. It's also worth saying what happened to um, Chris Cowdery. So he had that one game at Headingley, captain quite well by all accounts, didn't do anything with the bat, hardly bowled. Then he got a foot injury playing at Somerset, missed the fifth test. Graham Gooch stood in, thought it was for one game, but enjoyed it more, probably more than he thought, did really well with the bat. He was kept on. Cowdery didn't even get a call to say he wasn't Captain for Sri Lanka, the one-off test at the end of the summer, never mind the India tour, and that was his test career gone. Gucci actually had a contract with Western Province for that That's one. That's right, yeah. And and you're right, he decided that actually it, it kind of, as I think he later admitted to me, he said, you know, the captaincy turned him on, and, and mm. therefore he cancelled the contract and, uh, you know, made himself available to be captain. And, of course, that, that tour never went ahead because a few of them were on a, a, a UN blacklist. It took a while, but England did get a couple of good things out of that summer. Robin Smith came in and looked the part straight away. And more to the point, Graham Gooch as captain. I mean, obviously, he didn't then become captain again for another 18 months, but England would have a pretty good spell under him, and he would obviously have an extraordinary four years. That was about one of the few good things to come out of it, I guess. Yeah, we'll just go to the, the postscript of the, the tour, because to England's credit, really, Sri Lanka arrived and they were they were treated somewhat condescendingly with one test and, and one ODI. Um, but it was a decent win from England uh, in the test at Lords. Not the strongest Sri Lankan side that have ever come to these shores. But given the shellacking that they'd got from the, the West Indies, it was a pretty solid performance. Uh, scores all down the order. David Lawrence in the side, bowling fast. And uh, knock over the, West, uh, the Sri Lankans for 331 four wickets for Phil Newport and knock off the 100 required for the win. Is this a sign of the resilience amongst the England team? Uh, Derek, you were playing in this, your fifth test of the summer, or or was it you were kind of released from the the stress of dealing with the West Indies with all that history uh, behind them? 
Yeah, I know that the West Indies had given us a shellacking, but uh, I think we felt that we, we, we had more than enough to beat Sri Lanka and uh, obviously proved, proved as much because they were still making their way in Test cricket then. I mean, they had some, a few talented players, but I think I remember Gucci um, making, the, <laughs> making the observation that... Because I think um, the number 11 got some runs in the first innings, didn't he, Graham Lebroy? Yeah, yeah, 42. Yeah, well, Gucci said, "Well, you could put the, 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 you could switch the order, and you wouldn't know, notice the difference." <laughs> <laughs> so we we still felt they were a fledgling team in a way in, in Test cricket, uh, it, it, even if that was a little unfair, perhaps that that comment. But um, we expected a win, and we did. So there was no big deal about that. We still got hammered by the West Indies. Um, Selv, I don't know if you remember another thing you wrote. Um, uh, you're summing up of that of that West Indies series. You, you, you kind of you know true to a conclusion, and your final payoff line was. No decision, you talked about the man of the matches, man of the series, etc. And you said, no decision has been reached on the England captain of the series. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I quite like that. I quite like that. Well done, sir. <laughs> so I'll just go round, round uh, the panel to finish this episode off with just some thoughts. And we've already had some on the legacy of the uh, summer of 88 in leading to the Rebel Tour to South Africa, uh, led by Mike Gatting. But um, what what came out of it? Because as, as a fan, it's always held up as a kind of high watermark of the, the chaos that was England prior to things like central contracts, which were still 10 years in the future. Are there any lessons to be learned or, or was it just a th- time when everything went wrong against a side that may have been in transition but merely between greatness and future greatness Derek you were in the middle of it what, what, <laughs> how does it sit in its historical context personally I think it's just saved the seas for further chaos because the next year more players were used than ever before by England they used it even more can you believe it and uh, that was against the Aussies it was it was six tests that one I think and we lost yeah. uh, four of them and, and obviously there was the, 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 the you know, as Mike said, that that Rebel Tour was, was hatched in the middle of that series in 89 uh, and, and Gat went off to join that. Mickey, I think, wanted him to be captain in 89 and again, I think Ozzy Wheatley vetoed it. Uh, and David Gow was my captain and obviously he resigned at the end of that series and then Gucci became captain of England and, and kind of didn't quite do um, as good a job at hauling England up from the bootlaces as NASA Hussein did sort of decade later, but uh, did a pretty good job in getting them back on track to be some kind of a competitive side. So at my, yeah, I, th- I think um, I mean, a good thing, if, if, if I suppose coming out of it was Peter May finished and Ted took over, and Ted had his idiosyncrasies, as we well know, but he was a he, he had a really um, inquiring and, and very fertile cricket brain, Ted. Uh, so that that kind of happened. We had, as Derek said, we had another chaotic year. It was a, it was like the second wave, wasn't it? It was COVID cricket, wasn't it? <laughs> <laughs> the second wave coming. There was no no uh, uh, no vaccination for it, and and I suppose you know it. We we look at these things with a huge benefit of twenty twenty hindsight and how things should have been done and could have been done, but they weren't because the resource wasn't there to do it. You know, the the, the television deals weren't there to do the money and and so forth to support those sort of things and you know that was that was just uh, aspirational stuff back then even who even thought about full-time contracts for England cricketers no question there were players who were uh, who would have benefited immensely from from that kind of treatment but you know we've learned from it i suppose Derek 
at the time, were you conscious that there was a better way, i.e. that you should be given more chances, or was it just so ingrained that you just kind of got on with it and knew that you had two or three tests and you were out if you didn't perform? Well, just just in, um, per- speaking personally, when they decided to uh, that we'd meet on a Wednesday, sorry, a, a Tuesday instead of a Wednesday before a test match, I felt that was an enormous help. So just that, you know, extra day's preparation would help get your mind on it. I don't know. I mean, I was just brought up playing county cricket, so that's what, you know, I wanted to play for Essex. And I think Gooch, you know, you, if you'd have said to him, Gucci, you know, you don't have to play for Essex, he'd have gone, you what? <laughs> you must be joking, because yeah, I think you know that 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 test match you just talked about at the uh, uh, against Sri Lanka at Lords. He he nipped over to the Oval to play for Essex the next day. They, no, but it was the same day. There's a great story about this. I same day, yeah. Day. Same day. Sorry. Basically, so Tim Robinson blocked the last three balls before lunch. The clock was kind of bordering on one. The umpires were England needed one to win. The umpires went off, even though most people thought it was twelve fifty nine. So that was a forty minute delay. Then when they scored the winning runs, they had to delay the presentation ceremony because of an episode of Neighbours, which is just extraordinary. <laughs> and all the while, Graham Gooch is waiting to get away for a potential county championship decider or a really important game anyway. Yeah, just across the Oval, wasn't it? It's, yeah. He didn't have right. to go very far. Um, he did, yeah, he did ask Neil Foster and I if we'd like to join him. And we said, no, no, thanks. We're bowlers. <laughs> We're bowlers. <laughs> <laughs> thanks. <laughs> And, and yeah. Rob, it was your first sort of summer, as you say, as a kind of sentient cricket fan. I mean, how do you watch this as an Englishman and think that's where I'm going to invest my kind of sporting emotion it's bizarre, <laughs> for the rest of my life? <laughs> my family weren't particularly into cricket either. And so I, I just bracket this and 89 together, you know, 28 players and four captains in 88, 29 and was it one captain? in that, But but two 4-0 defeats, uh, just to kind of... I, I thought that was normal. I remember when they started to do a bit better under Graham Gooch and they started to name unchanged teams and even respond to defeats with unchanged teams, I couldn't get my head around it. I wondered why people weren't calling for, you know, seven new names. But um, yeah, it just, it just feels like a time capsule, really, kind of logical. Because it's not like in the rest of the 80s, selection was consistent. You know, one example as a Kemp fan, I remember reading about Mark Benson making his debut. I think he got two 20s, which is OK, never played again. But the 80, 88 and 89 were the most extreme versions. I don't think England... I think it's only one series pre-war when they pick more players against Australia. But apart from that, certainly in my lifetime, it's never happened. And I doubt it ever will again. I hope it doesn't. Well, it, was, my... it was a defeatist attitude in a, in a way. It was, it was gallows humour. You know those days when he had a rest day and there was always a press conference on the on the Saturday. And when Mickey was um, was manager, they always seemed to start with, well, Mickey, can we save it? <laughs> <laughs> One, one episode you it's should talk cliche. about. <laughs> My experience of, of this summer was that I think you mentioned vaccinations earlier. I think growing up as an Everton fan, I've been vaccinated by Liverpool's play in the uh, uh, when I was growing up. When you know Kevin Keegan disappears and up comes Kenny Dalglish. So you know you have Michael Holding picked out by the cameras sitting uh, watching the cricket from the outfield, retired from Test cricket, and they say and uh, resuming the attack for the West Indies is Kirtley Ambrose. And you think, well, there you go. <laughs> Michael Holding uh, retires and Kirtley Ambrose comes in. I think in, in 88, 
I was 25 and I just expected the West Indies to kind of always beat England because it was what happened. And it was just underlined by Kirtley and Courtney being first change and second change. I mean, how, how cruel is that? Um, but the, the 89 series was different. I, I, I did expect a much better showing against the 89 Australians, but the West Indies had such a grip, I think, on the, on the kind of psyche of, of England fans. And as you say, I think it, there was an element of it amongst the England team that, you know, the, these are better players and they, they are going to beat us at times. But uh, it was on the back of 76, 80 not so much, but 84, then to be rolled like that in 88, it's, there was an air of inevitability from certainly from the outfield. One one other thing, if you'd said to an England fan or an England player then that the West Indies would not win a series in England for the next 32 years, they'd yeah. have probably looked at you as if you'd said a young NASA saying should be Essex captain. <laughs> which Indeed. takes us right back to the beginning of the show, which is a good point at which uh, to end it. So um, I'll just say a grateful thanks, first of all, to uh, Derek Pringle. Thank you very much, Derek. Pleasure. To Mike Selvey. Oh, great fun, Gary, as ever. Thank you. And Rob Smythe. Thank you, Gary. Join us again next week for another episode of the 80s and 90s Cricket Show. Cricket Show.